This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guests today are Sarah LaChance and Kristen Taylor. They are from Stop the Movement. Now, people of Florida, this should freak you out a lot. Florida is one of the worst states in the nation when it comes to human trafficking. And I'm curious, and I have to ask you, Sarah, how does Tampa Bay compare to the rest of the state? That's a great question. One of the stats that we always share in our presentation is that there's something like 19,000 cities in the U.S. And of those 19,000 cities, Tampa Bay consistently ranks in the top 10 for human trafficking activity. Out of that many, we're in the top 10. And that's just calls that are made to the human trafficking hotline. Think about how many aren't. That is astounding. What is it? Like, I think my definition of human trafficking has always been like, I think of immigrants Mm -hmm. who are sort of kind of trapped in this sort of system to try and get here into the United States. But clearly I'm wrong and there has to be much more to it. Sure. That's absolutely part of it. What we're seeing a lot of is that it's trafficking from people here to people here. So a lot of it is not while this is happening in developing countries, it's happening in our country to and from people from our country. The best way that we explain what human trafficking is, there's a very long definition that you can look up if you'd like, but exploitation for profit. That's the way that we look at it. That could be sex trafficking or labor trafficking. It's happening every single day right here across Tampa Bay. Kristen, one of the things that has haunted me in the last year is at my church, we have in our restrooms these little signs where you can tear off a little piece of paper, and it's about human trafficking. If you are a victim, tear off a little piece, and this is where you go for help. And so many people have torn off those pieces. People in my church who are either victims themselves or they know someone. The statistics are astounding. You know, we watch the movie The Sound of Freedom, and we think it's happening over there. And like, as Sarah said, that it's happening to immigrants. But no, it is right here. And so much of it also is familial trafficking. People trafficking their own kids, sadly, to buy drugs or just for profit and illicit videos, things like that. So like when we broaden our definition of what human trafficking really is, it's actually anyone under the age of 18 as well for illicit videos and photos, that is also meets the definition of human trafficking because they cannot give consent at that age. So parents are actually selling their kids for these videos. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the stats that I think that the listeners should be aware of is that it's something like 90% of trafficking is familial. Familial meaning it's somebody within close proximity to the victim, somebody that they knew, somebody that they trusted, whether that's a family member, it's a, in generalization, it's a stepdad, it's a grandparent, it's an uncle, but it could also be a youth pastor. It could be a baseball coach, you know, your ballet instructor. It's somebody with access to a child that is in a position of authority that the child and generally the parent trust. And so that's one of the things that we focus on. It's imperative for people to know that because you're not looking out for that. What you're looking out for is how we grew up is the stranger in the white van with the big glasses. There's no windows and he's asking if you want candy and he scoops you up and you never see your family again. That's not what we're dealing with anymore. Does that happen though? That does happen. It accounts for probably 1% of the cases that are being seen throughout the U.S. So we can't dismiss that that's happening, but our focus heavily since COVID happened has been through internet safety. 
because that's where the traffickers have shifted their focus because we've shifted our focus to being solely internet focused. And that's where they're going. That's where our kids are. And that's when they're most vulnerable. I keep hearing that gaming systems, chat rooms in gaming systems are a problem. Yes. We've recently done a deep dive into that in certain games. I don't know how many of our listeners let their kids play Roblox. That's just one example. There's many local stories and of Florida kids who have actually met groomers and people online through those chat rooms in Roblox. And then they've later brought them onto other platforms after that too, like Discord and some other ones. And then they're able to get access to the kids. And then they've even been kidnapped. But they had access to them first. They spent a lot of time grooming. And also these video games, another thing that's really alarming about them, they desensitize the kids towards violence, towards sexual situations and dress and what is happening on these games too. Parents just have no idea. They have like these secret rooms where kids can be invited to that are somehow find their way around like all the the censoring tools and the filters because they pop up for about one minute at a time. And then there can be horrible violence happening to the kids' avatars in these little rooms and it traumatizes them. And I won't even, you know, say exactly online what what's happening, but just terrible, terrible violence. And it makes the kids feel this terrible shame. And once you have shame and then you create this vulnerability, they're more likely to fall victim to predators later because they already have secrets. They've been traumatized already, which is the prime vulnerability that traffickers look for. And some of these things that these kids are seeing will literally scar them for the rest of their lives. Yes. And it it could be happening directly to them, to their avatar in these games. So, Sarah, how did you get involved in this issue? This has been a passion of mine is just being part of human rights and finding out that people were for sale did not sit right with me. This was about a decade ago. And I just I really questioned how come I'm free and other people aren't. And then when I had kids, it completely shifted my thought. You know, why are my kids safe? And tonight they're going to go to bed and know that they're protected. And there's other kids that aren't. And that's jarring. And we've met children as young as five and seven, in fact, who have been victims. And and that's not right. And God, you know, is very clear about how he feels about justice in the Bible that we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Jesus stood up for what he believed in. And we're doing the same thing. And so we started Stop the Movement as a group of people who are passionate about justice and about the rights of men and women and children, about giving a voice to the people who don't have it yet, and about trying to prevent it. So we are the preventative piece of the human trafficking pyramid, if you will. We really believe that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We don't want to have to rebuild these survivors from the ground up, they have been through so much, they've endured more than any human should. And if we can prevent that from happening, we could change the community. We're talking with Sarah Lachance and Kristen Taylor from Stop the Movement. Is there a common vulnerability for most of the victims of human trafficking or is it just a wide array? In our trainings, what we say is, if you are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, young, old, fat, skinny, perfectly able, differently abled, 
it can affect anybody anywhere at any time there are some things that would make someone more vulnerable but it can affect someone from a two-parent household that makes a ton of money and they go to a private school can also affect somebody that's coming from a broken home or living in a group home in foster care we're looking at as kristen mentioned previous history of abuse would make you more vulnerable shockingly enough um, illiteracy drug use having a foster care system. yeah foster care system is huge a strained home life struggling in school struggling with self-worth things like that are all contributors to not just trafficking but exploitation in general why is that is it because you know struggling in school for example do they seek assistance from people who then take advantage so i'll give you a great example let's say that there's a 12 year old girl online and a trafficker is attempting to groom her and the conversation could go something like hi you're so pretty okay and she's already struggling in school maybe home life isn't that great and she doesn't know this person but someone gave her attention mm. she said oh thank you so much and he said how old are you 12 how old are you and he's gonna lie i'm 14 what school do you go to and slowly but surely we've already gained information now we know how old she is what school she goes to and the walls will come down as they do you know and she'll probably say man i hate school oh, tell me why you hate school. Well, I think you're smart. You know, I think you're pretty. I think you could do anything. You know, send me some pictures. And that gets the ball rolling and the ball never stops. And so it's an exploitation of the naivete of children. And again, it's the connection online where you would never let your children go up and speak to an adult that they don't know on the streets. I mean, we would be so concerned and freaked out. But online, it's a free-for-all. Right. And children also know the stranger danger, the traditional stranger danger, that they would never go talk to this person on the streets. But online is different. Kids are different. They let their guards down. And they also think that they're talking to a 14-year-old boy exactly. who happens to be really cute and showed a picture of himself. And he's got great abs and a beautiful smile. That's mm. what they think is happening. But it's not. Are there signs that someone may be a victim of human trafficking? Yes. Yes. So... We tell people if you're out and about in the public, you could see a child with another couple. It could be with like a dad that something doesn't look quite right. It could be like a father and a mother type of figure and something doesn't look quite right. You think of what you would normally see, the naturalness that behavior towards parent and child would be, you wouldn't see that. You wouldn't see eye contact being made. The victim would not be making eye contact with the parents, there wouldn't be like that loving touch. She wouldn't be allowed to speak for herself freely. Also, the victim would not make eye contact with anybody else, you know, say, for example, in the store where they are or in the gas station. There could be signs of physical abuse. We said that they wouldn't be able to speak for themselves. Perhaps maybe you see like a teen girl getting her nails done in a nail salon. So we will tell people, the salon owners, if the pimp brings them in, the pimp will direct, get her this, give her that, and she won't be able to make any decisions for herself. She won't be allowed to, but also because of the repeated trauma, she won't be able to. So those are some of the things. We also see some tattoos. A trafficker will brand their property with QR codes sometimes. It'll be like a crown. A tattoo could have a crown. It could say daddy, a dollar sign. We've seen gravestones with dollar signs on people's arms and things. 
So lots of times it can be hidden too. Like I, if they lift up their hair, it's under there like a barcode mm-hmm. or a scan code because you can literally scan a person in order to make a payment and then do the transaction. It's, mm-hmm. it's devastating. What we say to people is that if it seems off, it probably is off. So our biggest recommendation is to make a call to the human trafficking hotline whether or not you 100% know that it is a human trafficking situation. The great news is it is anonymous. Nobody will ever know that it was you that called. And you really could be the only one who makes a phone call that changes a life. Because victims in that situation cannot make the call for themselves. There's too much physical, emotional, and sexual abuse going on for them to out and out come to you in a grocery store, at a gas station, in the mall, and say, I'm a victim, please help me. That's not going to happen. So if you do suspect and you make a call to that number, what happens then? Is the person on the other end of that hotline going to ask you to take a picture or to follow them till they get to their car? What happens? Right. Absolutely do not follow them. Don't get involved. As um, vigilante as we are and you know, as much as we like to do a citizen's arrest on somebody, we are not qualified. And the thing is that we are not in danger. The victims are the ones that are in danger. So our best recommendation is if you're going to make a call, Provide as much information as you possibly can about the situation. Hair color, eye color, skin color, clothing, what are they wearing, how did they sound, any identifying marks, who are they with, what kind of car did they leave in, but do not insert yourself into the situation. Again, not because it's dangerous for you, because it's dangerous for the victim. Generally in places like gas stations or malls, there will be surveillance footage. So once a call is made to the human trafficking hotline, they will take it from there and disseminate that to the local police department who will then follow up with it. And they're the ones that are trained. They're the ones that know what to look for. I would say nine times out of 10, they probably already got a case going on and you are just fueling the fire. And again, really making the difference. It's the community that makes the difference. Yeah, your job as the hero stops with a phone call. 100%. But you're still the hero. Absolutely. So Sarah, can you tell us percentage-wise, how many of the victims are found online versus just some sort of grooming situation in a family? And then, Kristen, please give us some information where we can find out more about Stop the Movement. So it's 50% of victims are found online currently, which is drastically different than what we've seen in the past years. Again, COVID ramped all of this up. And we know that that number is only going to go up exponentially year after year. So that's why it's important that we do something now and that we are proactive in our attack against this. For more information, you can go to our website. It's www.stopthemovement.org. And we offer a lot of community trainings. We offer self-defense seminars and a lot of um, public campaigns that we're working on right now to spread the word. Stopthemovement.org. Our guests today have been Sarah Lachance and Kristen Taylor from Stop the Movement. And this is How We See It. You're listening to How We See It, a look at issues and ministries that are having an impact in our community and world. If you missed any of today's program, you'll find a copy on Spirit FM's SoundCloud page. There's a link to it at myspiritfm.com. Now, back to our program. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest is Katie McCarthy from Protect Our Kids. There are a lot of things that kids need protection from these days. Katie, can you list off some of the ways your organization is trying to protect our most vulnerable? 
So there are a lot of threats out there in public education. And even in some private schools, you can't be 100% sure that your kids are going to be protected, specifically since the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, which legalized gay marriage in all 50 states and across state lines. That gave the public education system the rationale to have to teach all kinds of relationships and sexual relationships, specifically in sex education. So this whole thing started with comprehensive sexuality education, which was mandated in California in 2016. And we got to look at some of the curriculum and we're just shocked that we would be encouraging children to experiment and all these different, you know, we just are completely redefining sex is what we're doing. So that grew to include um, historical revisionism, critical race theory, and something new called social and emotional learning, which everybody has to look out for. And that's, it's sort of like replacement parenting in schools. It's not a curriculum. It's more of a teaching method. It's more of a distribution method for the other three things. So we want to teach you gender theory. We want to teach you critical race theory. And we're going to do a lot of this through the lens of social and emotional learning, which is a Trojan horse to push those other things into the schools in the name of victimhood. That's the new cool thing, intersectionality. We're helping people by providing information and solutions. We have lots of toolkits on our website. The curriculum, is that part that encourages students to not tell their parents about whatever? Absolutely. I've even seen some scripts where teachers will be presenting something along the lines of non-binary gender identity, something called SOGI, which is S-O-G-I, sexual orientation and gender identity, which is a new gender theory, which is completely separated and opposite from the biological reproduction that we've known for thousands of years. And a lot of teachers are encouraged to say to the students, hey, if your parents go to church, they're not going to want to hear this. They're not going to want to know that you're learning this. And the reason why is they don't want the kids to go home and tell their parents. And kids don't want to go home and tell their parents that school is a mess because then parents will come in and make waves. And that kind of makes it a little uncomfortable for kids. So a lot of kids will take that as a cue like, okay, well, I'm not going to go home and share with my parents. So the social emotional learning is sort of developing and they use mental health as a reason to do this. Okay. Specifically COVID. Oh, our kids were isolated for so long. The suicide rate is up. Our kids need mental health. So we have to do social and emotional learning. And social and emotional learning is kind of replacing the parent relationship. They try to create a relationship with your children where they can gain their trust. How did Protect Our Kids get started? Well, our founder and president is a, by trade, a lawyer and an engineer. And I think it was about two decades ago, he was asked by his church to start something called the Salt and Light. I can't remember, the Salt and Light something. His knowledge, his pro-life work and knowledge of the legal system led him to these kinds of missions. And then in about 2018, realized what was coming into the classrooms in California, Marks in, in California they decided that they had to do something about it. At that time, I was part of a grassroots organization and we were doing on the ground fighting sex education by going to the Capitol, by having sex ed sit outs, having parents keep their kids home from school, writing letters, signing petitions, talking to politicians. But it became very apparent that 
they didn't care how many parents were against this. They had an agenda and they were, they were beholden to special interests. So Mark started this with conferences all over the state of California to inform parents and grandparents and concerned citizens about the dangers that were starting to creep into the public school system. And when COVID hit, the conferences all got shut down. And now we're a little more solutions oriented, but we're still trying to wake people up because it's not just in California anymore. I moved to Texas and it is here for sure. There are actually, I mean, we're in the state of Florida. We have all sorts of different rules and regs now, but there are teachers that are adamant about getting around those rules and regs so that they can still teach these types of things to our kids. Well, the federal government is actually, the Department of Education under the Biden administration has actually been using COVID relief money, billions and billions of dollars in grants to force some of this stuff in public schools. You have a school district that can get $100 million, but they have to adopt certain things like mental health. So they have to create a plan and it could be something just as easy as promoting a suicide hotline which actually is a circuitous route to get to the Trevor Project, which is an LBGT support place. And they they push you onto the Trevor chat spaces called Trevor Spaces. And Trevor Spaces are, kids are going there all the time. And they're just on their cell phones hitting these places and parents aren't even aware. Well, you know, when we were kids, we weren't afraid to pick up the phone and make a make a call. And today kids are like, I got a call. Can't I text? Can't I, you know, can I go on to an app or something? So even though they know that there's this national suicide hotline, there's also the online version of it. And if you go to the online version of it, then you, you can get into chats and start talking to people and you can talk to counselors. And these people are not really trained the way most want these people to be trained. They're kind of indulging a lot of sexual activity that transgresses social norms. We're talking with Katie McCarthy from Protect Our Kids. Do you work with libraries as well? Because one of the issues that we see is some of the books that kids are able to take out in libraries are not things that kids should be reading about. It takes away their innocence and forever plants these images in their brains that they will never get rid of. Absolutely. And at our website, Protect Our Kids, now.org. There is a toolkit for parents. If you go to the Threats library books, you will be able to look up what books are in your library. And I just did that here in Texas recently in a Catholic school that was kindergarten through eighth grade. And I searched on the keyword gender to see what would happen. And I came up with two books and they were both really bad. That was a really quick search I did. Now, I reached out to the pastor of the church associated with the Catholic school and said, hey, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but you have these in there. And quite frankly, when a school is particularly newer schools, when they are built, they have to fill up a a library with books and there's nobody that sits down and reads 100,000 books. So they go to these book publication companies and they buy bundles. They might be able to see a couple of titles. But it would be impossible. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But once you start looking, you realize it's really more a lot more than a needle in the haystack. And a lot of these schools actually have these titles in their libraries and they don't even know it. So mm-hmm. it's really good to, to check out your school libraries and find out what's in there and let them know because chances are they don't know. You're talking about issues that can spark anger. So have you ever been on the receiving end of threats or anything like that? 
Yes, absolutely. I've had some pretty salacious phone calls when I lived in California and we were at the height of the political fight. You know, in the beginning of this, it was very difficult to convince people that the problem existed. I mean, you think about it, what's the, what is the motivation behind this? Why do we want to sexualize the children? Why do we want them to have all kinds of sexual exploration and experimentation and expose themselves to pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, not to mention what happens to their hearts and their minds and their spirits and their souls. This is just really, really damaging. So why would we work so hard to do this on purpose? The more that parents were able to see, particularly when schools were shut down and during COVID and we had a lot of Zoom school going on, they started to realize, yeah, this, this is definitely happening. So that's why we're seeing parents speaking out at public school board meetings and getting more involved. But really, this is a very large problem, and it's going to take more than a decade to turn this around. So if your kids are in third grade, they're graduating in nine or 10 years. If you can find an alternative education solution, that would be the best thing. And you can go to our website again, www.protectourkidsnow.org, and find suggestions on how to go forward with that. In our few minutes of time left here, can you give us just a few things that parents can do to ensure that their children are being shielded? Okay. Well, first of all, if you don't know what's going on, you can't protect your kids. So you need to know what's going on. And to that end, we have a free downloadable report. It's just a one piece of paper, double-sided, back to school questions every parent should ask their kids' schools. And those questions, there's seven of them, and they involve the triple threat, which is comprehensive sex education, critical race theory, and social and emotional learning. So those are the first three. Then the library books. There are surveys that many public schools ask the kids to take that ask a lot of personal invasive questions about sex and drugs and alcohol and personal family information. There are clubs that recruit kids and into different ideologies. And then there's also things you can do to opt out of some of this, but you're not gonna be able to opt your kid out of everything. You probably won't be able to opt your kid out of most things. So if you go to our website and print that out, I would make several copies and give them to your friends. And, and if everybody starts to get the knowledge of what's going on in public schools, also, we have brochures that you can print out on our website. We have the triple threat, which is, you know, you can print these out for free. And we also have the comprehensive sexuality education brochure and share them with your friends and there's power in numbers. So go to a school board meeting and bring the other parents with you and look at the agenda first. There are a lot of instructions on how to engage in school board meetings on our website under parents toolkits. So when people get into teaching, they're not interested in teaching about sexualizing children, I'm sure. So do you have any tools available for teachers who don't want to do this? And how about for pastors and ministers? Yes, there is a toolkit for teachers. When they are forced into these teachers unions, they're paying dues that are funding a lot of what's happening in public schools. So there's 50 million students in public schools. That's a lot of money if you average it out to about 20,000 per student per year. Then there's just hundreds of millions more in teachers' dues from teachers' unions. A lot of teachers don't realize that they are, by law, they no longer are required to be in the teachers' unions. For pastors, we actually created a brochure where if a pastor has extra parish space or you know a parish hall, and they'd like to create a small homeschool, 
they can do that. They can get some parents together. And it's, it's really actually very easy. I homeschooled all four of my kids over 20 years. And um, I can tell you when I started, I thought that it was going to be impossible, but there's so many resources available now that weren't available when I started. And really you do a lot of farming out. So don't be afraid of homeschooling. Pastors, don't be afraid of using your space to allow others to homeschool. Our guest is Katie McCarthy from Protect Our Kids, and this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash howwesee it. <laughs>